Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, September 2nd, 2022. It's been 3,109 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 191 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, there is enough available evidence indicating that Ukraine is making progress in the Kherson counteroffensive in three locations— despite Kremlin claims that it has already failed. Second, Russian President Vladimir Putin has set September 15th as the new deadline to capture the remainder of the Donetsk Oblast, and we find that goal impossible. Third, the Russian Ministry of Defense continues its aggressive disinformation campaign about the counteroffensive. Fourth, Ukrainian forces have established fire control over vital supply lines for Russian forces— and are choking off munitions, fuel, and equipment in Kherson, Zaporizhia, and Izum. Fifth, we maintain that the risk of Russian terror attacks on civilians and civilian infrastructure to break morale is exceptionally high, and will remain so for the foreseeable future. Sixth, we continue to believe there is a significant chance that Russian forces will abandon their offensives in Bakhmut, but with the presence of the 3rd Army Corps in Donetsk and Putin's mandate, it appears the offensive west of Donetsk will continue and intensify. And finally, not all victories on the battlefield are kinetic. Ukraine's continuous attacks on Russian ground lines of communication, called G-locks or supply lines, indicate they plan to collapse Russian resistance by forcing them to consume their existing supplies. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Kherson counteroffensive and Mykolaiv. The general staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine continues its media blackout and press coverage restrictions until September 5th. Ukrainian armed forces, the local population, and most press sources have honored the request. Gaining verified information while respecting operational security, or OPSEC, has been a challenge. Since the counteroffensive started on August 29th, there have been repeated reports of Oleksandrivka in Kherson being shelled. We have moved the line of conflict south and consider the town, which has been absolutely blasted to dust after six months of fighting, as contested. Video emerged of a Russian forward operating base in Shadokabalka, 
that was destroyed in what appears to have been a HIMARS attack. The poster claims that 58 Russian troops were killed. We can't verify the number of casualties. Another video showed Russian forces surrendering 100 meters west of Pravdine. Several soldiers waved large white flags. There have been reports of intense fighting for control of the town from both Ukrainian and Russian sources. We consider the settlement contested based on the available information. Some pro-Russian accounts reported that Russian troops advanced to the southern edge of Ternovipodi, which Ukraine took control of on August 29th. Analyzing the terrain around the small village, we find the claims implausible. Pro-Russian accounts also claimed Ukrainian forces attempted to advance on Blachodatne from the north, which is also implausible, because that would require a contested crossing of the Inuletsky Canal. The command and control center for the Russian military in Snikhrivko was destroyed in an artillery attack. Ukrainian forces are finding the most success on the Inulets River bridgehead. Pro-Russian accounts reported Ukraine had liberated Kostromka and was fighting for control of Bruskinsky. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported that Lazova, Sukistavok, and Velika Artakova were hit by airstrikes, confirming that Ukrainian troops were present in all three settlements. Additionally, Andreevka was shelled. Further west, Russian armor was destroyed in a forested area near Novohrednieve. Ukrainian forces were fighting on the western edge of Davrid Brid, based on multiple reports from pro-Russian and pro-Ukrainian sources. The Washington Post broke OPSEC and reported from Kamyane. The report shared photos of a low-water crossing over the Inulets River that the Ukrainian military and civilians have used to cross into Kherson Oblast freely. During their coverage, a Ukrainian soldier told them that Russian forces were nearby and that they should leave because of the low accuracy of their artillery. Based on the report, the photos, and the evidence that civilians are fishing and freely crossing the river, we've coded Novodimitrivka as liberated. Pro-Russian account Rybar reported continued fighting for control of Arkhangelsk and claimed that Russian troops were pushed out of Olhin and Viskopilia but were able to push back into the southern parts, where street fighting continued. A video showed Ukrainian forces shelling Russian positions in the city's southern tip. The general staff reported that Russian troops tried to advance on Potomkin from Viskopilia, but didn't clarify if that was a new attack or a counter against the Ukrainian offensive. The general staff also reported that Ukrainian positions in Lyubomorivka and Petrivka were shelled, and Kreschenivka was hit by an airstrike. In northeast Kherson, NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, shows a steady southward fire progression since August 29th. We believe Petrivka is liberated, and Lyubomorivka and Kreschenivka are contested. Three of the four advances we have enough confidence to report have moved to or beyond our possible line of conflict assessment from August 30th. Fighting is reported as intense by Ukrainian and Russian sources, and territorial gains are reportedly coming at a high cost. Ukrainians suppress and destroy enemy air defense efforts during July and August are paying dividends on the battlefield, Operational Command South reported that Ukrainian Air Force flew 18 attack missions in Kherson. An additional sign that Ukraine holds air superiority over Kherson 
The general staff released several videos of Bayraktar TB2 drones attacking targets of opportunity. The drones are large, relatively slow, and would make easy targets for Manpads, Buk, S-300, S-400, and Pantsir anti-aircraft systems. Operational Command South reported an additional strike each on the Kohovka and Daryevsky bridges, including destroying a partially rebuilt pontoon bridge at Daryevka. Ukraine now claims to have fire control over the remains of the three bridges over the Dnipro. Satellite imagery shows only one ferry operating across the Dnipro at Kherson, and no additional work on the barge bridge. Ukraine continued to target Russian supplies, command and control, and G-locks. Ukrainian insurgents reported the location of where Russian forces were attempting to build a pontoon crossing near Novokohovka, which was then destroyed in a HIMARS attack. Pictures show a large fire burning, indicating that a convoy was staged to make a crossing at the time of the attack. Russian troop and supply concentrations in Olishki, which has become a staging area to cross into Kherson by the lone operating ferry, were destroyed in an apparent HIMARS strike. Russian assets in Kohovka were also destroyed. Russian mill bloggers and the Russian Ministry of Defense continue to push the narrative that the counteroffensive isn't extensive and has already failed. As we've said previously, it's unreasonable to expect to see results in hours or even days. A central message is forming, however, describing Ukrainian troops as unwilling and undertrained puppets of NATO using inferior NATO-provided weapons. Some assessment here. Ukrainian military training for territorial guards was only two weeks at the start of the war. Training being led by NATO is now five weeks, and territorial guard forces are increasingly being rotated out on other fronts to reconstitute. We've previously documented how the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics, or LNR and DNR, use forced conscripts with one week of training. We've also documented the one to two weeks of training given to volunteer units of the Russian armed forces, the private military company Wagner Group recruits, and the neo-Nazi terrorist organizations, the Imperial Legion and ENOT Corps. It is well documented that Russian replacement forces have been issued bolt-action rifles from World War II, SSH-68 steel helmets that offer no ballistic protection and no body armor. Losses will be heavy in a counteroffensive, as we previously assessed on July 29th, and progress will start slowly. There are continued indications that Russian forces are experiencing supply issues, and Ukrainian artillery capabilities in Kherson are close to parity, with far greater accuracy. Ukrainian forces are making steady, methodical progress in three directions. Russian troops in Viskopilia are under the most pressure, with a shrinking path of retreat that is 12 kilometers long through open wheat fields. Ukraine has established at least three wet crossings, and until the Washington Post story, one was completely uncontested. Ukrainian forces have advanced up to 10 kilometers in some areas, which will require an operational pause to reinforce G-locks and prevent becoming overextended. We maintain that Ukraine is not seeking a kinetic victory, but intends to starve Russian forces of supplies. It's essential to recognize that 25,000 Russian troops are in a technical encirclement west of the Dnipro River. Russian military doctrine is heavily dependent on artillery fire. Consumption of ammunition, fuel, 
medicine, and spare parts is unsustainable due to the destroyed G-locks. Ukrainian soldiers report that Russian forces are throwing, quote, everything they have against their advances. Additionally, any Russian position abandoned with equipment or ammunition left behind can almost immediately be put into service by Ukraine. It could take days, weeks, or even months for Russian supplies to become exhausted, but at some point, they will run out of resources if they don't regain control of the bridges and repair them. The situation in Kherson is fluid, and better quality intelligence may alter our assessment in the coming hours and days. In conclusion, as of September 2nd, Ukraine's progress in Kherson is exceeding our expectations. The Russian Air Force fired a cruise missile from a Su-35 aircraft at Mykolaiv that was intercepted by air defenses. The Russian Air Force also dropped 250-kilogram bombs on Mykolaiv, injuring two people. Let's move on to Dnipropetrovsk and northern Zaporizhia. United Nations inspectors with the International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, arrived in Enerjodar and took an initial survey of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. IAEA Director General Mariano Grossi reported that a team of five inspectors would remain at the plant through September 2nd for a deeper audit of the situation. Inspectors were filmed by Russian state media going through the plant and discovering military equipment stored by Reactor 1, as shown in previous undercover videos. The Russian Ministry of Defense claimed that 60 Ukrainian airborne troops using two boats attempted to storm the power plant in an attempt to take it over before inspectors arrived. Russian sources claim, without any evidence, that the attempt failed, the boats were sunk, and the entire group of commandos was neutralized. Russian-based disinformation accounts made grander claims. In addition to the boats, which grew to seven in number, Ukraine tried to use two barges to transport 300 additional troops in the attack, which were sunk mid-river with no survivors. At the time of recording, disinformation accounts claimed that 384 highly trained Ukrainian commandos died in the botched raid. Some assessment here. The Russian Ministry of Defense provided zero proof to back up any of these claims. Nor did it have any pictures of the fighting, attacks, or sinking boats and barges. We find it extremely unlikely that Ukraine would launch a daytime attack across the Dnipro River to capture a power plant with a garrison of 500 soldiers with such a small force. A floating pedestrian bridge near the power plant was disconnected from its anchor on one side, leaving a gap between it and the path used by people to access shops from villages outside of Enerjodar. It does not appear this was related to any military activity, nor was this one of the mythical war barges allegedly sunk mid-river. In a truly amazing coincidence, on the same day that IAEA inspectors were spending the night at Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, Nikopol did not experience shelling or a grad rocket attack fired from the area of the power plant or Enerjodar. Valentin Reznichenko, head of the Dnipropetrovsk Oblast Military Administration, reported that the Chervonohriorivka Romada, which is an area of territorial control similar to a county or parish in the United States, was hit by several grad rockets. A 56-year-old man attempted to escape by driving away 
and his car was hit by a rocket. Amazingly, he survived and is in stable condition. It was the only area shelled overnight. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. And now to the Donbass region. There wasn't any fighting in southern Zaporizhia we can report without breaking operational security. Fighting in the direction of Polohi and Tokmak continued. The deputy chief of the main operational department of the general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine, Alexei Gromov, reported that two tactical groups were sent from Bilgorod to the Orhiv region. This is likely in response to ongoing activity south of the beleaguered city. Russian and Ukrainian forces exchanged artillery, rockets fired from multiple launch rocket systems, or MLRS, and tank fire from Zelenopoly to Huliopole to Orihiv. A HIMARS attack on the Russian-controlled airbase in Melitopol landed 10 rockets on an ammunition depot. There were multiple social media reports of a large fire with secondary explosions. In southwest Donetsk, Russian President Vladimir Putin has extended the deadline to capture all of the Donetsk Oblast to September 15th, after Russian troops failed to meet the previous deadline of August 31st. It is doubtful the entire Third Army Corps has arrived in Donetsk and Zaporizhia, and given the rush of troops being sent to Ukraine, it is unlikely that they have received complete training. Our favorite FSB colonel, wanted war criminal and Kremlin pariah Igor Gherkin-Strelkov reported that Ukrainian forces launched a counterattack on Novoselivka and had partial success. Fighting increased in intensity west of Donetsk, but Russian forces didn't make any gains. The 1st Army Corps of the DNR attempted to advance on Avdivka, Nevelsky, Pervomaisky, Pisky, and Krasnohorivka. All five advances failed. Intense fighting for Pisky continued, with Russian forces continuing to shell Ukrainian positions on the E-50 ring road and the pisky pervomaisky border. The Donetsk People's Republic shared a video of artillery firing on the Ukrainian position on the border of the two towns. Ukrainian troops are likely on both sides of the highway. Otherwise, Ukrainian and Russian forces traded artillery, rockets from MLRS, and indirect tank fire from New York to Karlivka. In Bakhmut, the updated Russian objective is to secure the area by September 15th to support an autumn referendum to join the Russian Federation. PMC Wagner and the 2nd Army Corps of the LNR relaunched their attacks on Solidar and Bakhmutska, but remained unable to break through Ukrainian defenses. Wagner Group is suffering catastrophic losses after a month of repeated attacks on Bakhmut, but continues to send reinforcements to attack the same Ukrainian positions. Ukraine was able to rotate defending units, with most territorial guards replaced with better equipped and better trained forces. Further south, LNR separatists continued their attempts to advance on Vesela Dolina and Zaitseve. Gains were made in Vesela Dolina, but measured in meters and the attack on Zaitseve was unsuccessful. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, fighting for Kodema continued, with Russian forces establishing their positions in the eastern part of the village. 
Russian forces made a new attempt to advance on Mayorsk and could not break through the Ukrainian defenses. Our assessment in Bakhmut is unchanged from August 25th. We recapped it on yesterday's episode around minute 11. In northeast Donetsk and Luhansk, the updated Russian objective is to capture the remainder of the Donetsk Oblast by September 15th, control insurgency, and integrate captured territory into Russia. There wasn't any significant ground fighting in this region, but the settlements around Siversk were shelled, along with the T-1302 highway, including Bilohorivka in Donetsk and Spirne. Closer to Slovyansk, Rajhorodok was shelled. Our assessment here is unchanged from August 18th. We recapped it on yesterday's episode around minute 14. Moving on to the Kharkiv region, starting with the Izum Axis. Russian forces attempted to advance on Dolina and were unsuccessful, and the Russian Air Force attacked Novodimitrivka and Bohorodichne. Leaders with the Donetsk People's Republic claim Ukrainian forces attacked Rupsi with HIMARS, destroying the temporary offices of the Ministry of Emergency Situations, killing 13 and wounding 9. The report stated, quote, Young people always came to the aid of local residents, demined objects, carried humanitarian aid. End quote. A quick assessment here. Inexperienced people would not defuse an unexploded HIMARS rocket with a 91-kilogram warhead. The official report claim of, quote, demining objects indicates that ammunition was stored at the offices. The video of the incident didn't show any aid being recovered either. Deputy Chief of the Main Operational Department of the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, Gromov, reported that a Russian BTG was being deployed into the, quote, Slovyansk area to aid the faltering defense of Izum. Our assessment of the Izum axis is unchanged from August 8th. We last recapped it on Monday's episode around minute 12. There wasn't any significant ground fighting in northern Kharkiv, though typical artillery exchanges occurred along the entire line of conflict northwest, north, and northeast of Kharkiv. The general staff reported that Yudi was shelled in both reports. We're waiting for additional information before returning the settlement to Ukrainian control. The major counteroffensive from Kharkiv never occurred, as we previously assessed. The rumors started by the DNR only served to create a degree of panic in Bilgorod, Russia. Russia fired a single S-300 anti-aircraft missile at Kharkiv City. The missile successfully shot down four parked cars and left a large crater in the ground. There were no injuries. Our assessment in Kharkiv is unchanged from August 12th. We last recapped it on the 19th around minute 9. To the north, in the Cherniev and Sumy region, Dmitry Zhivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reporting the Hromadas of Krasnupilia, Nova Sloboda, Snob Novhorod, Esmen, and Kirikivka were shelled by Russian forces firing from across the international border. In the village of Maiske, two cars, a garage, and a home were damaged. Russian forces also fired across the international border in the Cherniev Oblast, shelling Kamyanska, Sloboda, Zalizny Mist, and Sankivka. There weren't any reports of serious damage or casualties. 
Let's talk about developments theater-wide and outside Ukraine. A leaked document from the Russian Ministry of Defense revealed that 50,000 Russian soldiers had been killed in action in Ukraine since February 24th. The number would not include certain contract troops in service with the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic, PMC Wagner Group, foreign volunteer units, or terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion. The total casualties, including killed and wounded in action, could be as high as 175,000. Some assessment here. Wounded in action means a soldier was wounded badly enough to require leaving the battlefield. It could be a simple procedure to remove a small piece of shrapnel and a few stitches, or as severe as a permanent disability. The United States has a killed-in-action to wounded-in-action ratio of 1 to 5 or 6, while Ukrainian forces are closer to 3 or 4. Based on the minimal data released by Russia, the ratio is estimated to be 1 to 2.5 due to a lack of training in battlefield medicine and antiquated field first-aid kits. Enough of the nerdy math. We can double-check the claim. The Russian Ministry of Defense uses a formula that goes back to Soviet times to calculate the number of casualties a military suffers based on the number of officers killed. For every officer killed, they calculate there are 247 casualties. Russia has 1,067 confirmed officers killed since February 24th, not counting those who fell out of Russian windows. That would come up with the eye-watering number of 263,000. Military doctrine has changed since the formula was created, and battlefield medicine has dramatically improved since the 1940s. Another issue is that before the 1970s, it was common to have more casualties from disease and exposure than from battle. The formula was adjusted to account for these improvements, and after all the math is done... The estimated number of casualties is 176,000. The anti-Putin resistance groups, the Freedom of Russia Legion, and the National Republican Army signed a declaration of cooperation to create a common political platform that Ilya Ponomorev will lead. The National Republican Army claimed responsibility for the assassination of propagandist Daria Dugina, daughter of 21st-century Rasputin, Alexander Dugin. The Ukrainian Working Group, created by the United States, will hold its next meeting on September 8th. The group of more than 50 nations meets monthly to coordinate Ukraine's economic, humanitarian, and military aid. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Mykola Osechenko, the president of Mariupol TV, claimed that over 100,000 Mariupol civilians were killed during the 78-day siege. As of mid-August, the Ilichivsky morgue of Mariupol documented 87,000 dead people. In addition, a database of unidentified killed people is kept in the Novo Azov prosecutor's office and contains 26,750 entries. If the claim is accurate, it is the worst number of civilian deaths in a single city since World War II and represents almost 25% of the pre-war population. 
A graphic video showed the results of Russian forces' potential false flag attack on Enerjodar. A shell landed in a civilian area, damaging a building, destroying multiple cars, and killing at least one person. We're going to move on to geopolitical news, but I'm going to give you another content warning. We are going to discuss suicide in this episode. According to Russian state media sources, Ravil Maganov, the chief of Russian Lukoil, died suddenly from a serious illness. The part that Russian state media left out is that Maganov's sudden illness involved falling out of the window of the hospital where he was receiving treatment. TASS later reported he had fallen out of a six-story window in an apparent suicide. Maganov is the fourth energy industry oligarch to die since the start of the, quote, special military operation. We're going to pause on the news for a moment. Suicide is a sensitive topic. If you are having suicidal thoughts or you're despondent, there is help available. If you're in the United States, you can dial 988 or 800-273-8255. You can also text 741741, or if you're a veteran, text 838-255. In Canada, you can call 833-456-4566 or text 45645. If you're in the UK, 0800-689-5652 or 999. In Ireland and Northern Ireland, free phone 116123, or in Ireland only, you can text 50808. In Australia, 131114 or 000, or text 0477 13 11 14. In New Zealand, 0508 828 865 or 1. We'll put these numbers in the description for you. Back to the news. The Minister of Finance, Sergei Marchenko of Ukraine, and his German counterpart, Christian Littner, signed an agreement to provide the war-torn nation with a 1 billion euro grant to maintain the state budget. President Zelensky quit the trilateral contract group established in 2014 between the breakaway Donbass republics and Russia. No official reason was given, but we think it's pretty obvious. The German Office for the Protection of the Constitution has opened up an espionage investigation into two senior-level officials in the Federal Ministry of Economics. The duo is accused of spying for Russia and had access to sensitive information about energy policy with the German government. Suspicion was raised due to the intense pressure they applied to approve the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline, inconsistencies in their resumes, and at least one undocumented trip to Russia. In economic news, the ruble was unchanged, with an official exchange rate of 60 rubles for one U.S. dollar. Oil prices dropped slightly, with West Texas Intermediate falling to $88 a barrel and Brent closing at $94 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline recovered some losses, climbing to $2.42 a gallon, or $0.63 cents a liter. Chicago SRW wheat futures dropped to $0.78 cents a bushel for December 2022 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. 
Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.